Romans 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of the darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. This week, we're looking at it. Really, it's the second half of last week's sermon. So uh, we'll start off with a really brief review, particularly for those of you who weren't here last week's. We won't go through all the detail of it, because it'll become overwhelming with this week's added on top. But basically what we were looking at is the whole issue of the relationship between faith and obedience in salvation. And we see, first of all, Paul sets out his position is that our salvation, our relationship with God and our eternal life is dependent solely, exclusively on one reality. Jesus' death for our sin. And dying for our sin, he took away the sin from us. And so we can enter God's presence now and at the end of time. But this is controversial. Because Paul was reaching out to Gentiles. And the church was predominantly Jewish. Paul was reaching out to Gentiles, bringing them into the church. And there was a lot of enmity between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles considered the Jews just odd. They did odd things. They wouldn't eat uh, the normal foods. They wouldn't eat with the usual people. They circumcised their babies. It was just very odd. Uh, The Jews considered the Gentiles just totally disgusting. Uh, They would exercise nude, which was really a violation of Old Testament. They would, uh, Gentiles would eat anything. They were wild, had wild parties. They were famous for wild parties. And so there's this conflict constantly, partly as ethnic and partly as behavioral. So when Paul comes along to reach the Gentiles and he says, look, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to obey all these funny food laws. All you got to do is believe in Jesus. Then the Judaizers a group called the Judaizers, Paul's opponents came along and said, no, they're just going to bring all that disgusting stuff into the church. So sure they can come, but they believe in Jesus, his atoning death for their sins, they believe in Jesus, and then on top of faith, they add the law. Torah obedience. Torah is the Jewish term for the first five books of the Old Testament. So first you have faith, you have faith, and then you have to have Torah obedience. And then Paul responds, uh, well, he says, of course there's going to be obedience, but that's not the basis of our salvation. 
Hey, the basis is purely Jesus' death. But Jesus doesn't die, he resurrects. And so when we put our faith in him, Jesus doesn't just die for us outside of us, he also comes to live within us. And so Paul says our lives will be transformed, but that's not the basis for our salvation. We will obey, but that's not the grounds for our salvation. So it's not, uh, it's not Jesus' faith plus Torah obedience. It's Jesus' death for us and his indwelling presence. And so Paul picks up the phrase in contrast to law obedience or, or Torah obedience, Paul invents this new phrase, faith obedience. And it's really the theme of his entire book. If you want to know what, in one phrase, what the, what encapsulates the entire book of Romans, 16 chapters, it's this notion of faith obedience. You see, Paul begins with it in his first five verses, verse five. He's talking about his ministry. Through him, through Jesus, we received grace and apostleship through uh, Jesus. Paul has been commissioned to be an apostle to call all the Gentiles to what? To the obedience that comes from faith. This is not obedience that comes from submission to the law. It's obedience that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. He dies for our sin, takes our sin away. He comes to indwell us. So it's obedience that's transformative. Not based on an outward code but based on inward transformation. So Paul begins on that theme, his whole book. And then he ends on that theme, just the verse before his last. Next to the last verse. Why does he serve, what is the point of his entire ministry and his apostleship? So that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience, again this phrase, that comes from faith. His goal from the beginning to the end of the book, from the beginning to the end of his ministry, is faith obedience. Notice, not law obedience, and not just faith, as if there can be saving faith when there is no obedience. Paul's ministry goal is faith obedience, obedience that springs from faith, obedience that springs from Jesus' death for our sins and his resurrected life within us. Now, for this week... Romans, like most of Paul's letters, start with theology. The first half, roughly, is typically theology. And the second half is typically working out the practicalities of it. What does it look like in practice? And for us, this is really an urgent question. Because whatever obedience we allow for, whatever obedience we say is necessary, poses a problem for us, typically, today. You know, it raises the question... How much obedience is necessary? Whether it's works obedience or, or faith obedience, how much obedience is necessary? Many of us tend to be like the pre-reformed Luther. Luther, the founder of the Protestant movement, uh, the Protestant churches like ours. Before he came to an encounter with God, he was a monk living rigidly according to all the precepts, constantly plagued by a sense of guilt. And you know that the medieval church, like some modern churches, practiced confession, and he would go into the confessional. It would take him four hours to get through his sins, and he'd remember something he had done wrong, and he'd go back in again. He'd confess the inadequacy of his confession. He was constantly plagued by guilt. And we have a lot of people today who are also struggling with being over-scrupulous, 
Now, I'll give you one concrete example of this this morning. You know, I tend in this direction. And, and this morning, uh, one of the CM co-workers, you know, we have three clocks in the back of this sanctuary. Yeah, I don't mind if you take a look at it, you know, three clocks, right? Now, the one on my left, your right, is actually a countdown clock. It's meant to be a countdown clock. That way the preacher knows not only how he's counting up the sermon, he's counting down the sermon, and there's a big clock in the middle. Oh, they took the hands off the big one in the middle. They decided that three clocks was more than enough. We have two. Count up, count down. But now the remote control is missing for the, the countdown. And this is a problem because maybe the pastor will preach too long without a countdown. So one of the brothers came to see me before the service and said, well, would you announce to the whole congregation that we've lost the remote control, one of the two remote controls for the countdown clock, and if we lose another one, we won't have the, we won't have the countdown clock, you know, and the sermons will go too long. Now, i got better things to do before a service starts, and you've got better things to listen to than this bit about a remote control. I'm not wild about announcements, you know, this is worship, not business. So... <laughs> But I want to get it over with. The conversation over with. So I got up and I said, okay, if, if, if I remember, I will. Now here's the problem. If I'm like the pre-reformed Luther or over-scrupulous, well, the minute I say, if I remember, I will, you know I'm going to remember. And then you know I'm going to have to do it because Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if I don't do this, then, then I've sinned, you know. So we get preoccupied with these little things. Now I've announced it, right? So if you stole the remote, you don't have to confess. Just sneak it up here on this table at the end of the service. And if you didn't steal the remote, but you got spare remotes at home, bring them in. Put them on here. Well, you know. <laughs> Jesus said, if you have if you have two and your brother need, has only one, and, or your brother has none, sorry, give one of your two to your brother. So bring your spare remotes. Anyway, moving on. You know, we get all this. The point is, in a frivolous way, we, the point is, a lot of us, for one reason or another, live with this pervasive sense of, we haven't done enough. The minute, whether it be faith obedience or works obedience, we got that big O there, the, the obedience word. And we think, oh, we gotta do more, gotta do more. What are we gonna do? You know. And partly, let's be honest, partly this comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus do? He took the Torah standards, works righteousness standards, and he raised them exponentially. I mean, Paul says, don't worry about Torah righteousness, but, but Jesus says, whoa, this is not nearly strict enough. You know, so he says, it's not just don't murder, don't hate, because hate is like murder. A and he says, don't say raka to some, don't call somebody a fool, because if you call them a fool, you'll suffer the fires of hell. Have you ever gone through, have you not once called somebody a fool in your life? You know? Another frivolous illustration. One Saturday after worship team practice, we were having them come back to our house for a barbecue. And I went first, and I was at the practice, and I went first, and I found a jam on the highway, so I, I know back roads, I'm going to my own house, so I took a lot of back roads, and, and I figured out that the worship team was going to get caught in the same jam, so I called up the worship team leader and said, you know, there's, back, there's a jam, take these back roads. And just as I was talking to her, a car cut me off. And so I said, Idiot! <laughs> While I'm talking to the worship team leader, <laughs> who is not in the car and doesn't know that I just got cut off. <laughs> Fortunately, she worked out what was going on and didn't think I was calling her an idiot. 
so I don't lose my job. But the question is, am I now liable for the fires of hell? Because I called somebody an idiot. You know, Jesus raises the standard. Now, now Jesus is talking about, the Sermon on the Mount is directed toward a, particularly a Jewish audience. Matthew is particularly geared toward a Jewish audience. And, and what Jesus is saying is, look, if you want Torah righteousness, if you want works righteousness to get you to heaven, this is how much works you have to do. This is how good you have to be. But we're not talking about works righteousness. We're talking about faith righteousness, faith obedience. And yet the odd thing is, we still carry this over often. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. But I want to start off with a preliminary observation before we get into Scripture. Or four ramifications or four variations on a preliminary observation. The preliminary observation would be this. While we want to bring Jesus into every aspect of our lives, and we want to submit every aspect of our lives to Jesus, Here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to approach a non-spiritual problem as if it's a spiritual problem. We don't want to try and find spiritual solutions to every single problem that we have if it's not spiritual in nature. For example, you know, there are some psychological or emotional reasons why we could be guilt-ridden. I mentioned a week ago that modern commentators think Luther probably struggled, in part at least, with OCD. He was really obsessive about all the little details of his life and the little details of his sin. And a lot of people who are plagued by a constant sense of inadequacy and sinfulness and condemnation before God, often, not always, but often it's not a spiritual problem. It's a psychological or emotional issue. And we can bring scripture into that situation, but scripture is probably not enough. We probably also want to bring in some therapy into the situation. Or instead of psychological, sometimes the issue, oh, oh, sorry, another manifestation of the psychological is the perfectionism. You know, many psychometric instruments divide personalities into four types. And one of those four types, described differently by different instruments, tends to include high-quality performance driven by a sense of perfectionism. Well, perfectionism has spiritual dimensions to it. We take our self-worth from God, not from being perfect. So there are spiritual dimensions, but it's not predominantly a spiritual problem. And its solution will not be predominantly spiritual, probably. It'll probably involve some therapy. Let's not spiritualize every issue we face. Uh, Guilt can also run, uh, can derive from uh, developmental issues. Now, I don't want to be targeting a segment of this population. It doesn't have to be just just the end, Uh, not just this case. It can happen at the end of life. But teen years are a very confused time often. And then people in this all unsettled thing, uh, who am I and, and, you know, where do I fit in the world and am I good enough? Am I uh, good enough looking? Am I smart enough? Am I religious enough? Am I devout enough? They could create a lot of turmoil. It's a developmental issue, not necessarily a spiritual issue. And so Bart Ehrman, I've mentioned once or twice before, is one of the most uh, vocal critics of evangelical faith today. He's a professor at UNC, writes a lot of books, a religion professor at UNC, writes a lot of books uh, undermining Christian faith. Started out as an evangelical. 
And in hindsight, what he says is, when he went through the teen years and he was struggling with self-doubt and all sorts of insecurities, people came and brought Jesus as the solution to his insecurities. And then he became a Christian for a while, but then he just couldn't keep it up. And he went to some of the most famous Christian schools, two of the most famous Christian schools, and he just couldn't keep it up. And in grad school, when he was working on his PhD in religion, he gave and was serving as a part-time pastor, he gave it up, and now teaches as a sec, as an atheist agnostic teaches religion. No, there are developmental issues that create a sense of guilt and inadequacy. And if our issues are developmental, we don't want to just dismiss them. We don't want to spiritualize them and treat them purely spiritually. We treat them from a developmental perspective. Uh, there's also, you'll know, you, some of you would have anticipated, obviously I'm going to get to this, because we're a predominantly, not exclusively, Chinese church, or most of us are Chinese. We will soon not be a, well, whether or not we're a Chinese congregation, let's leave that aside. But for the moment, you know, most of us have a Chinese background, or, let's not blame it all on Chinese, we have a conservative Christian background. And whether it be the pressure of Chinese parents worried for us, because they love us, pushing us really hard academically so that the only decent grade is an A, A plus, preferably, or whether it be conservative Christianity, which is focused on helping us feel guilt so that we'll come to Christ for forgiveness, either one of these cultural phenomena can promote guilt excessively. And if it's a cultural phenomenon, again, we don't spiritualize it, we don't look for a spiritual solution, we look for a cultural solution. And there can be also theological dimensions to this. People start off with their basic idea, a theologically sound idea, whether it be grace or faith, or on the negative side, they start off with sin and guilt, and they just develop more and more theology, more and more experience out of this, uh, more and more psychology out of this experience, out of this theology. These issues, if, if these are the causes, we approach them appropriately. We don't have to, we don't want to spiritualize them. When we finally get beyond all this and we ask, what is biblical teaching? What is Paul's standard? Paul has called for faith obedience. He begins Romans with his call for faith obedience, 1.5. He ends Romans with his call for faith obedience, 16.26. Now, in the second half of Romans, he ex helps to elaborate what's involved in faith obedience. And my central thesis this morning is this, that a great many of us beat ourselves up over many flaws in personality and character that are not sin. Many of us over-own sin. We look at our lives and find quirks and flaws that we would just as soon not be there. We identify them as sins and we beat ourselves. If I were a Christian, I wouldn't keep living this way. If I were a good Christian, I wouldn't do these things. If we let us, let me not equivocate, let us own sin. But let us own only those things which really are legitimately sin. And as Paul uh, develops his argument, the, the practicalities, as he fleshes out the practicalities of his argument in Romans, uh, second half of Romans, we see that a lot of the things that we own as sin aren't on his concern list. Take a look, or 
first of all, think about Romans 9 to 11. Some of you are familiar with this already. Romans, we'll just skim over the whole of Romans, and then we're going to focus on two passages that are particularly relevant, or one passage in two parts that's particularly relevant. The whole point of Romans 9 to 11 is to explain why Jews, the, the, the Jewish ethnicity as a whole, is not saved. Now bear in mind, the Christian church started as Jewish, and then God called Paul to reach out to the Gentiles, and the church in Rome was still Jewish. And then Gentiles were coming in. But Paul's point in Romans 9 11 is, Jews as Jews aren't particularly saved any more than anybody else is saved. Jews as Jews can be saved the same way that everybody else is saved. Jews need to accept Christ. They're not saved inherently. Like nobody else is saved inherently. Paul is not anti-Jewish. He's just saying you're not saved intrinsically just by the fact that you're an ethnic Jew or a religiously observant Jew. And why not? Chapter 10, he explains why. Chapter 10, 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4. He said, because, because the, uh, the Jews were devout, or are devout, they're dedicated, they're obedient, they're careful. But because they don't know the righteousness of God, they've missed Jesus. They sought to establish their own righteousness rather than pursuing the righteousness of God. Rather than pursuing Christ, they tried really hard to be good enough to merit God's approval. I'll give you a concrete illustration of this. And with no mockery, it's just, actually, you've got to respect the hard, how hard people try. You know, my wife and I are getting ready to sell our home, and so we have to, you know, dress it up. It's kind of like... Our house will never look as good again. It's kind of like the, the, the day you get married, right? You'll never look as good again as the day you got married. And our house will never look as good again as the day we sell it. One of the things we did was we went out to buy a new oven. Do you realize they have special features on an oven, what they call a Sabbath feature on the oven? Ovens are wired to turn off after six hours, max after 12 hours, in case you forget it, you don't burn your house down. Very good for somebody my age. But a Sabbath feature, the problem is you're not allowed to turn an oven on on the Sabbath if you're a strict, strictly observant Jew. So an oven with a Sabbath feature will enable you to program that oven to stay on at a low temperature. So if you want warm food on the Sabbath, the solution is you turn your oven on before the Sabbath starts and you turn it off 24 hours later after the Sabbath is over. But it won't automatically stay on that long. So you have a feature on your oven. You can click in the Sabbath feature so that it turns on and then stays on at a low temperature the whole time. Works righteousness. We want to be good enough. And Romans 9 and 11 says, you know, if you try to be good enough, first of all, you're going to fail. But the worst thing is you're going to miss Jesus. Who's the solution for the fact that none of us is good enough? So we come to Jesus in faith, Romans 9 to 11. The first thing we know about faith obedience is it starts with faith. Faith is what, what Martin Luther described as holding out an open hand. Just saying to God, I know I can't be good enough. Save me through Jesus. Faith obedience starts with faith. 
holiness that God expects. The holiness that honors God starts with faith. And then in chapter 12 to 15, he fleshes out some more aspects of this holiness. And the most conspicuous thing, if you read this later on in your own time, Romans 12 to 15, the most conspicuous thing here is how gentle, how gracious it all is. When, when Paul describes the faith, the, the obedience that God expects of us, he says things like this. Romans 12, first half. Serve each other humbly. Don't be arrogant. Do stuff to help each other. Can you do that? I can do that. Live graciously with people inside the church and outside the church. Can you be kind to people? Most of the time we can do that. Submit to the government, even if it's not a Christian government. Yeah, can we do that? Yeah, probably so. Don't fuss at each other over personal convictions and narrow scruples. You know, if you've got a lot of things, a whole long list of things Christians should and shouldn't do, and nobody else has a short list of things Christians should and shouldn't do, don't fuss at each other. Can we live that way? Sure. This is easily attainable stuff. You know, many of us, for whatever reason, cultural, psychological, temperament, whatever it is, many of us are still like the pre-Reformation Martin Luther, the pre-conversion Martin Luther. We've got this great long list of things, and, and any little thing we see wrong, we think, oh no, I've sinned. Again, I'll never be adequate for God. And Paul sets out what he expects, what God expects, to serve each other humbly, to live graciously and gently to submit to the government and not to fight over scruples. Really, it seems to be, it all comes down to this. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be belligerent. This is what God calls us to. Not perfection. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be belligerent. If you read Time magazine, it's the very thing that Donald Trump has started to do recently, in the last few days. It's not an overwhelming standard. If we're beating ourselves up, it's probably not because of Scripture or because of God. It's probably because of either temperament or culture or upbringing or Satan. Christ calls us to faith obedience. It begins by throwing ourselves on his mercy. It continues by him indwelling us and guiding us. And by us, Lightening up a bit on ourselves. Now let me show you, because we've just skimmed over this, and you'll have to take my word for it until you go home and read this. Let me show you how it works out concretely in two passages. First of all, chapter the, the one passage actually, but in two parts. The part that um, just the scripture reader read, read this morning. Romans chapter 13, 8 to 10, followed by verses 11 to 14. Now, this really has one passage in two parts because Paul, first of all, says the positives that we must do. And then he says the negatives we must avoid. So here is what God's standard of obedience is for us. The positives we must do, the negatives we must avoid. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. 
The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, Paul's being gentle. You know, Paul has to speak gently with the believers from a Jewish background because he wants to keep them in the church. He wants them to know that they can be fine with God, they can have a relationship with God. So he talks about the law, and he says, look, all these things you're trying to accomplish with the law. Think about the Ten Commandments. He says, all of these things boil down to this. Care for one another. Love each other. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Whatever other commandment can be summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Basically what Paul is saying is, treat each other graciously. Right? And then he tells them the second part. That's the positive. The negative part is this. Here's some things they must avoid. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day of salvation, full salvation, is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now notice how he describes the deeds of darkness. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not, not in carousing and drunkenness. Don't be getting drunk and carrying on at parties. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery. Have sex only within the confines of legal marriage. Not in dissension and jealousy. Don't constantly bicker and fight and split a church. Can we do that? I think we can do that. Maybe not all of us are currently doing that, but it's manageable. With the Christ who transforms us and lives within us, we can do this. We can live lives of soberness and usefulness. We can be faithful to our spouses. We can avoid quibbling with each other over things that don't matter. And so Paul says in verse 14, rather, instead of doing these things, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus. He's not calling them, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus and therefore be perfect. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus so that you're not walking around in a drunken stupor, so that, that you're not having sex with anything you can, so that you're not constantly fighting and bickering with other people. This is really a manageable standard that Paul lets out for us. So basically, I come back to this same point. I do think that a lot of us beat ourselves up, for whatever reason, over things that are relatively inconsequential. We're far too liberal with the word sin. Bear in mind, there are some th sins that the New Testament says, this could get you sent to hell, is it worth it? And they're on this list. Drunkenness, uh, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension and jealousy, envy and greed. You know, some of that banking stuff on Wall Street could get people sent to hell. 
Some of the sexual immorality that goes on in our culture could get people sent to hell. But mostly, the New Testament standard is manageable. Throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ. And then as he indwells us and empowers us, we live for him. We love one another. We care for the world around us. Basically, the summation of this entire sermon, and I would say the summation of biblical holiness, comes down to this. Don't sweat the little stuff with the one caveat that it's not all little stuff. Sweat the big stuff and don't sweat the little stuff. God is merciful. He sent Christ to die for us. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God, the atoning death of Jesus. We turn to the resurrected Christ who lives within us to help us live a life of kindness and gentleness. We don't sweat the little stuff, but we recognize that there are some things that we must take with ultimate seriousness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great mercy that when we would not obey, you sent Christ to atone for our sin. And not only that, but to remake us from the inside out so that we now can obey. And you give us the standard which is within our grasp, empowered by the Spirit and forgiven by Christ. May we be found faithful at the end of time by your grace, by the death of Christ, and by the Spirit's transformation. In Jesus' name, amen.